0: Section 25 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 7, Chapter 3 Last Years of Elizabeth. The years that followed the repulse of the Spanish Armada were the culminating years of Elizabeth's reign. England awoke to her true position. Spain was everywhere driven back. France again began to form itself into a strong and united power. Yet the power of Spain was still looked upon with respect. Henry IV and Elizabeth would both of them gladly have made peace with Philip II and would have given the Netherlands over to him could they have been certain of his intentions toward themselves. But Philip still supported the League in France and threatened another invasion of England. Henry IV and Elizabeth still held by the Netherlands, though they were always suspicious of one another's intentions. The struggle of Philip and the League against Henry IV became every day more hopeless. Henry's position in France became so far secure after his conversion that in December 1595 Pope Clement VIII solemnly gave him absolution the religious struggle in france was now over protestantism had been vanquished not by the victory of the extreme party but by the formation of a moderate party which lay between the two extremes france returned to submission to the papacy but it was a voluntary submission and the attitude of the french church was one of independence the pope was glad to see the re-establishment of the old equilibrium between the two catholic powers of france and spain so long as spain only had been thoroughly catholic the papacy had had to follow spain entirely now it could again assume an independent position between the two powers after the absolution of henry the fourth it was impossible for philip long to continue war against him philip himself in spite of his great dominions, was hopelessly bankrupt. The loss of the resources of the Netherlands, the expenses of his many wars, and the ruinous financial system which he had inherited, and by which the yearly revenue was pledged for the payment of interest on the royal debt. All these causes combined to exhaust the king's coffers, though he squandered nothing on his own magnificence or pleasures. In the beginning of 1596 Philip won an important triumph by the capture of Calais, but this awoke the alarm of England and of the Hollanders as much as of the French. A joint expedition was equipped against Spain in which England took the lead. Lord Admiral Howard sailed with a fleet of 150 vessels against Cadiz, and the Earl of Essex commanded the land forces. On June 21st the spanish ships which assembled for the defence of the town were entirely defeated essex was the first to leap on shore and the english troops easily took the city the clemency of the english soldiers contrasted favourably with the terrible barbarities of the spaniards in the netherlands the mercy and the clemency that hath been showed here wrote lord howard will be spoken of throughout the world No man or woman was needlessly injured, but Cadiz was sacked and the shipping in its harbour destroyed. Essex wished to follow up this exploit by a further attack upon Spain, but Howard, who had accomplished the task for which he had been sent, insisted on returning home. This was the last great naval expedition against Spain. There was in England also a strong desire for peace, the queen and burleigh were both growing old they felt that they had accomplished their purpose they had steered england through the difficulties which beset her they would gladly have reaped the advantages of the position which they had now secured but there was a strong party among the younger nobles who were animated by the old spirit of hatred against spain they were eager for an opportunity of gaining military distinction They longed to destroy Spain utterly and to win for England without dispute the mastery of the seas. The struggles of these two parties cast a shadow over the declining years of Elizabeth, and the Queen's personal weaknesses were mingled in a melancholy and almost tragic way in the political intrigues which disturbed the end of her reign. The leader of the war party was Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex he was leicester's stepson and had been introduced to court by him after leicester's death he became the queen's chief favourite and succeeded to leicester's influence young handsome chivalrous outspoken and ambitious he awoke all elizabeth's tenderness and although he was more than thirty years her junior she bestowed upon him the affection of a mistress rather than of a mother he gathered round him all the ambitious and ardent spirits of the time and so long as his influence was supreme with the queen a policy of peace was impossible when he set out for cadiz his power was at its height during his absence burleigh prevailed with the queen to have his son robert cecil appointed secretary of state the peace party had thus gained a great victory and used their power to disparage the exploits of Essex. On his return he took up a position of determined antagonism to them, and symbolized his views at a festival in honor of the queen's accession. He was met in the tilt-yard by a hermit, an officer of state, and a soldier. Each entreated him to follow his views of life, but the answer was given that this knight would never forsake his mistress's love whose virtue made all his thoughts divine, whose wisdom taught him all true policy, whose beauty and worth made him at all times fit to command armies. In 1597 Essex prevailed upon the Queen to allow a naval expedition known as the Island Voyage to be made with the object of destroying the Spanish ships and of cutting off their fleet on its return from the West Indies. The fleet sailed for the Azores, where Raleigh, without waiting for Essex, captured the island of Fayal. Essex blazed into anger against Raleigh and even threatened his life. Party quarrels broke out even in the fleet. The expedition was a failure owing to the mistakes made by Essex. The Spanish fleet escaped, and the English squadron reached home without having done much damage philip meantime had sent out another armada against england which was dispersed by a storm off the scilly isles and was driven back to Ferrol. this was however the last attempt at war upon a large scale henry the fourth early in fifteen ninety eight concluded with philip the treaty of and turned his attention to the consolidation of the french monarchy upon its old catholic basis by the edict of nantes toleration was given to the french protestants but a slow process of political exclusion and social pressure was applied to win them back to catholicism philip's hands were once more free for operations against england and the netherlands his plan was to give up to his daughter isabella the sovereignty of the spanish netherlands and leave to her husband the cardinal archduke albert of austria The task of reducing the disobedient provinces. Meanwhile, England was again to be attacked where it was most vulnerable—in Ireland. The discontented Irish had been reduced to obedience by a strong hand, and had been kept quiet during the great crisis of Elizabeth's reign. In fifteen ninety-seven, Lord De Bur pushed into Ulster, and after some fighting, fortified and garrisoned Portmore on the Blackwater near Armagh the troops of Ulster united under Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, who received support from Philip and the Pope. After several attempts to storm Portmore, he besieged it, and in August 1598 beat back Sir Henry Baganal, who was marching to its aid. This was a severe blow to the English forces, and the fort was at once surrendered. Philip could not, however, prosecute his designs, he died in september after a most painful illness which he endured with christian fortitude i die like a good catholic in faith and obedience to the holy roman church were his last words he was seventy-one years old and had ruled the spanish monarchy for forty years he was a sincere fanatic who had identified his own interests with those of catholicism we have seen how wide were his plans and how far-reaching was his policy his great schemes failed one by one and left him hopelessly bankrupt. In 1597 he repudiated his debts and ruined many of the chief commercial houses in Europe. His enterprises aimed solely at extending his own influence and the power of his house. His possessions were taxed to the utmost to supply funds for these great undertakings, and his people's industry was stopped by unwise taxes. Castile, as being the seat of his government, suffered most. The fall of Spain from its high position in Europe was gradual, but the causes of its decay were financial. It had to pay for the great plans of Charles V and Philip II, and it received no national advantage to recompense it for the injurious results of their failure. Philip II left to his successor a high position, an impoverished exchequer and a ruinous system of government it required only a few years for the last two legacies to destroy the first in spite of all his efforts philip the second had seen the loss to the spanish monarchy of the united provinces of the netherlands the cession of the obedient provinces known henceforth as the spanish netherlands to the infanta isabella and her husband albert was made just before philip's death they were to bear joint rule over the provinces with the title of the archdukes under their skilful general spinola a worthy successor of alexander of parma the war in the netherlands was carried on briskly till 1607 but generalship was soon developed in the united provinces as well prince maurice of orange son of william the silent displayed remarkable powers as a tactician While war was carried on under him and Spinola, the Netherlands became a school of warfare to the rest of Europe. The United Provinces continued to hold their own against all attempts to subdue them. In 1607, a truce was made which practically recognized that the United Provinces had made good their claim to independence. Under Prince Maurice as Stadtholder, Holland became a European power whose commercial and colonizing activity soon gained for her an important position. Meanwhile, England had still to face the serious difficulty of the Irish revolt. The Peace Party, amongst Elizabeth's counsellors saw in this new peril a fit field for the warlike ambition of Essex. Somewhat against his will, he was sent out as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, with an army of 22,000 men it was to be seen if he would justify by his deeds his martial talk. Essex left the court unwillingly, for his personal relations toward the queen were unsatisfactory. He had become intoxicated by power, and forgot at times the basis of its tenure. He mistook his popularity for an independent source of authority, and thought that the queen could not do without him at a council in which irish affairs were being discussed essex differed from the queen and when she refused to follow his opinion he turned his back contemptuously upon her enraged elizabeth gave him a box on the ear and essex laid his hand upon his sword exclaiming that he would not have endured such an affront at the hands of henry the himself for some time after this he stayed away from court but the quarrel was made up, and Essex sailed for Ireland in March 1599, accompanied by royal favor and popular applause and expectations. Essex's conduct in his command disappointed all men's hopes. Instead of marching against Tyrone and Ulster, he spent four months in putting down smaller rebels in Munster. Even there his success was not brilliant, and his soldiers suffered from sickness. When at last he went against Tyrone, his men were dispirited. He could not venture on a battle, and entered into negotiations with the rebel chiefs. There were rumours of a renewal of war with Spain, and Essex was anxious to return to England. He made peace with Tyrone, contrary to his orders, but he still trusted to his own popularity. He hastily returned to England in September and hurried at once into the Queen's presence at first she received him graciously but soon the voices of his enemies prevailed essex was called to account for his conduct before the council and was committed to custody he was examined before the star chamber was deprived of his offices and ordered to live a prisoner in his own house during the queen's pleasure his conduct had awakened the queen's suspicions and his enemies accused him of making a league with tyrone that he might obtain aid from him in a projected revolt in england he was not admitted into the royal presence and when in september sixteen hundred a monopoly of sweet wines expired from which he drew his chief source of income it was not renewed essex now saw that his enemies were bent on his ruin and he determined on a decided step he threw his doors open and gathered his friends around him Once more he trusted to his popularity to overawe the queen and obtain his old influence over her. The Privy Council, alarmed at his preparations, summoned him before them. He refused to appear, and when some of the councillors were sent to ask the cause of the assemblage at Essex House, they were kept as prisoners, and Essex marched with his followers into the city, hoping that it would rise on his behalf but the people saw no cause for a revolt. Essex, with difficulty, made his way back to his house and was forced to surrender February eighth, sixteen 1601. He was brought to trial and found guilty of high treason. It was a terrible trial to Elizabeth to sign the death warrant of the man she had loved, but the force of events drove her to do so. The queen, who had condemned to death, the Duke of Norfolk, and Mary, Queen of Scots, could not pardon Essex if she would. He was executed on February 25th, and Elizabeth, now grown old and worn with cares, never recovered from the shock of this tragic complication. A cloud gathered over the last years of Elizabeth. Her old ministers were dead, and intrigues which she could not command were rife around her. A new generation of her people had grown up whose interests lay beyond the shifty policy to which Elizabeth had now accustomed herself. England had passed through the great crisis of its peril in safety, and those who now enjoyed the proud feeling of independence felt little sympathy with the cautious policy by which that independence had been slowly won. Elizabeth had done her work and outlived her time. As she went to open parliament in 1601 she no longer heard the accustomed acclamations from the populace who resented essex's death the expenses moreover of the irish war began to weigh heavily upon her up to this time she had managed by strict economy to keep herself tolerably independent of parliamentary grants and hence her tone to parliament had been one of superiority and repression in sixteen o one large supplies were granted by parliament for the irish war but an attack was made upon the right which the crown exercised of granting monopolies or the exclusive right of trading in some article to courtiers as a convenient way of providing for them without expense so bitter and so unanimous was the house in its complaints that it was impossible for the queen to stand against it seeing that she must give way Elizabeth did so with good grace. She sent a message to the house that she would revoke all illegal grants of monopolies. Her message was received with joy. One member even called it a gospel of glad tidings. A deputation went to thank her, and Elizabeth, in a dignified speech, thanked them for having pointed out to her a mistake into which she had fallen through error of judgment the new spirit of the people was finding its expression in a desire for greater political freedom the arbitrary system of the tudors which made everything center round the sovereign was no longer in accordance with the new state of things which their strong government had done so much to promote parliament began to act with greater freedom and independence and it required all elizabeth's tact and prestige to maintain her old position there were signs that her successor would have to modify her system of government which was rendered tolerable to the people only by its success a gleam of success was thrown over the last years of elizabeth by the victory of lord mountjoy formerly sir charles blunt in ireland the joint forces of the spaniards and irish were defeated but though Tyrone was reduced to extremities mountjoy recommended that an agreement be made with him his final submission was made six days after the queen's death elizabeth's end was rapidly approaching she became moody and wayward after essex's death she realized it from her own isolation she became gloomy and suspicious she walks much in her privy chamber says sir john harrington and stamps with her feet at ill news and thrusts her rusty sword at times into the heiress in great rage the dangers are over, yet she always keeps a sword by her table. Bodily weakness and mental distress rapidly increased, till in March 1603 she took to her bed. Sir Robert Carey, her kinsman, gives an account of her condition. She took me by the hand and wrung it hard, and said, No, Robin, I am not well, and then discoursed with me of her indisposition and that her heart had been sad and heavy for ten or twelve days, and in her discourse she fetched not so few as forty or fifty great sighs. Her illness grew worse till on March twenty-third she was speechless. It is said that by signs she indicated to her council the King of Scotland as her successor. Then she made signs for the archbishop to come to her, and listened long to his prayers, twice when he rose from his knees to depart she motioned to him to continue early on thursday morning march twenty fourth she died in the seventieth year of her age and the forty sixth of her reign her character has been sufficiently shown in recounting the events in which she took part her wisdom and her prudence are to be measured by her success with scanty means at her command she yet succeeded in an age of vast plans and huge undertakings, in guiding England safely through the dangers which threatened it on every side. During her reign, England grew rapidly both in inward resources and in outward importance. Freed from the fear of Spain, England began to realize her position as the chief maritime power of Europe. A new spirit began to develop itself amongst the people the increased sense of individual power found its expression in the grandest outburst of English poetry. The reign of Elizabeth marks the time when England began definitely to assume those features which most distinguish her from other nations at the present day. End of section 25. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D., in Encino, California, August 10th, in the Year of the Plague, 2020. End of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton.